We have a special privilege today, um, just a unique opportunity for us, and really a long-awaited day uh, for our church family and for our leadership team. Today we have the privilege and the true honor of having our first uh, supported Grace Church-supported global missionary with us today to preach the Word of God to us, and uh, we are eager for the ministry that uh, Josiah Grauman will be taking up as he is back from Mexico, back into Los Angeles, training um, the local Hispanic pastors in a Spanish-only speaking seminary. And uh, we are thrilled about what the Lord has done already through Josiah and in Josiah. And we're excited about partnering with him in the work that he's going to do as they begin this new uh, opportunity for training up leadership within the local church. Josiah Grauman is uh, not a new name to many of you, and probably a whole bunch of you are somehow related to him. Um, I'm aware of that, and uh, if you're not, just check your tree when you get home. You probably are, and uh, if you're from that part of the woods, you know that that's true. Um, He's not an unfamiliar name, and we've met Josiah before, uh, but this is a unique opportunity this morning. This morning, he comes to preach to us as one that we are, for the uh, immediate future, and as far as we can see, partnering with in ministry. He is going to become, and he and Crystal will become, a real part of our every week life together. And uh, we'll pray for them, we'll care for them, we'll know them, we'll watch them, and uh, be able to be blessed and served by them as the Lord gives us opportunity. We have opportunity to love them and care for them, uh, specifically as a church family. Our leadership team is committed to monthly support for Josiah and Crystal and Abigail and baby number two, and uh, we're excited to support them on a monthly basis. And we're also excited about one other opportunity. If you don't know, Josiah is going to be heading up, uh, really from an instructional standpoint, heading up by himself, the Expositors Institute, which will be a Spanish-speaking training center based on the Campus of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley. The men who will come to the training center uh, will have a highly, highly discounted rate and will receive a first-class theological education. Um, This will be on par with the Master's Seminary education for men who otherwise would never be able to afford that kind of training. Most of these men are already serving Christ faithfully within their local churches as pastors. They're also, most of them, working another job and will be coming and being trained at the Expositors Institute. One of the ways that we can support the ministry of the Expositors Institute and one of the ways that our leadership team is convinced will be a blessing for the first generation of men who will come through is to scholarship students from the Expositors Institute to actually provide the resources that they would need to come and be a part of this. It costs about, what I understand, about $1,000 a year for them to partake in the training there at the Expositors Institute. So you pray as a family, you pray as individuals about how the Lord could use you in this ministry and know that we as a church are also taking steps to be a support. In fact, Josiah doesn't know this, but we would love to have this opportunity to tell you that our church family, because of the blessings that God has given us, is going to commit to giving $10,000, scholarshiping 10 students for the first year Uh, there at the Expositors Institute. A one-time opportunity for us to say how much we're behind uh, the ministry to the Hispanic churches and how greatly we see the need and how confident we are that Josiah is the man for the task and a faithful servant of the Lord. 
So we're excited about every opportunity to connect with their family and their ministry. And today is the starting point. Josiah, with that back up, Josiah is going to come and open God's word for us. And I know you're going to be blessed. I know you're going to be fed. And that's what gives me great confidence. Let's welcome Josiah Grauman as he comes to preach the word. Wow. It's a joy and a, a privilege to be with you here this morning. Um, I'm stunned, so I'm just kind of gathering my thoughts here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, I guess it's a, a lot of firsts for everyone this morning. We dropped Abby off in the nursery for the first time in her life today. That's a big deal. <laughs> That's a big deal. So, uh, praise the Lord. God is the creator of the universe. He is holy. He is just. And so our sin has separated us from him. Because of his love, uh, he has sent his son to live the perfect life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserve. And anyone who repents and believes in him can have eternal life. Question for you this morning. Have I preached the gospel to you by saying that? Have I preached the gospel to you? Well... There's a lot of truth in there, a lot of good biblical truth in there. But I would say no. I would argue no. First, I never mentioned the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, with there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. Second, I never warned you. Paul says in Colossians 1.28 that a quintessential aspect of gospel proclamation is to warn people. Rao writes in his famous book on holiness, we should never forget the primary message of the gospel is and always has been flee from the wrath that is to come. And men will never flee from something unless they are terrified by it. Oh, that is simply to illustrate one simple fact. And that is that getting the gospel right isn't something that just comes automatic. It isn't something that just comes natural. The day we become Christians, now we just know the gospel and we know how to preach it. Something that we have to study, have to study the scriptures to both dominate the message and the method that God sets out for us in his word. I've spent the last seven years, more or less, in my life trying to reach Spanish-speaking people. Obviously, most of them are Catholic. And it's been interesting coming back here to the States in this last couple of weeks because the ecumenical movement is so big here. I think... Though it's not a perfect illustration, I think it'd be a little bit like a missionary coming back from Iraq and hearing about the evangelical Muslim movement. And it'd be like, what, do they wage evangelical jihad too? Um, It just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I think when you see an evil in a more raw form in a foreign country, it just makes it that much more unbelievable when you hear the sort of things that you hear here in the States. But, of course, Scripture clearly states that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. does his best, I think especially here in the States, to come just this close to the real thing, right? This close to the real gospel and yet still damning is good enough for Satan. And I think that's why it's so important that we spend attention on these little things. This is why Hebrews 2 
where we'll be this morning, starts by saying, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to the things we have heard, lest we drift, lest we drift away from it. Christ, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, is the gospel. To get the gospel right, first and foremost, we must get Christ right. One of the most disturbing images that I have ever seen is one that I saw every day as a hospital chaplain, probably. One that I continue to see as a missionary. And that is people dying on their deathbed, clinging to a rosary and a picture of La Virgen de Guadalupe. And I've asked myself often, what is it that births this longing for Mary, this longing for sympathy in her? I think in a large part, it's based on a defective view of the humanity of Christ. If we think a few moments about how Christ is generally depicted, he apparently had a halo around his head. His face sort of glowed and I think he sort of just kind of floated around the earth, sort of like a Gnostic spirit. Almost human, but you know, not quite human enough to understand me like someone, someone like Mary would. We obviously, I trust, don't worship Mary here in this room. But we all long for sympathy. We all long for something or someone who understands us and as far as help goes, all those things like Mary are dead and deaf to our Christ for help. And only Christ can. We cannot worship Christ correctly if we have a defective view of his humanity. Example, if in the moment of some dark trial, some sexual temptation, some greedy thought, you think, yeah, yeah I mean, Christ understands I me. Mean, yeah, he was tempted, but, but he was God. You are denying the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we get all riled up if someone denies the deity of Christ, and rightly so, but let me remind you what John says in 2 John 7, if someone denies the humanity of Christ, if someone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, he is the Antichrist, according to John. It's a big deal. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Well, the author of Hebrews gives us two reasons why Jesus, who is God, came to earth as a man. One, to die our death, and two, to live our life. To die our death and to live our life. We must properly understand Christ's humanity so that we can properly worship him who alone is able to help us. Before we enter the text, let me set the stage for us just a bit with the context. It's 68 AD, Rome is burning, and everyone's blaming the Jewish Christians. They were persecuted all around, right? The Gentiles hated them. Their Jewish families had rejected them and kicked them out of the family. Some of these Jewish Christians began to wrestle with the dark temptations of looking for a way out. They started to reason with themselves. Judaism wasn't that different from Christianity. They used the same Bible that we do. They worshiped the same God, Jehovah, that we do. And if they could just say that maybe Jesus was a sort of supreme angelic being, well, this would fit into the theology of Jewish monotheism and all the persecution would end. They could enter back into the synagogue and worship God there, worship Christ there. As a side note, this sounds a lot like modern day ecumenicalism, does it not? Compromise the truth to avoid problems. 
So the book of Hebrews does what God always does, and that is not compromise, but contend for the truth. So in summary, we can say that the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians considering turning back to Judaism to avoid persecution and considering Jesus for who he is, is the author's answer to their contemplation of apostasy. So he exalts Jesus Christ in every way. He systematically compares Jesus to everything that the Old Testament has to offer. Says that Jesus, he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Aaron. He's a better priest, he offered a better sacrifice in every way. Jesus is better. As we read also at the end, well at the beginning of chapter 2. I think it would be unfair to the book of Hebrews to not also mention that laced throughout the book, laced throughout the exaltation of Christ over the Old Testament, there also come extreme exhortations. Now that God has shown to us Christ, now that God has shown himself to us in so great a Christ, rejecting him brings a judgment far greater than anything we could ever imagine. Chapter 1. Then compares Christ to the angels and Christ being God. Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his being. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The father says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever. He's not an angel. He's much better than the angels. He being God created the world. He created the angels and the angels just run errands in the world. Hebrews 2 will be this morning still comparing Christ to the angels, says Christ is much better than the angels because he's man too. He's man too. We'll be in verses 14 through 18, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18. And as you turn, let me remind you, we'll be looking at two reasons why Christ became man, to die our death and to live our life. Please follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, we pray in these moments that we study your word that you would open our minds to understand, that you would open our minds to Behold the wonders, the beauty of your law. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would not only understand it, but be able to put it in practice as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. To truly worship Christ, we must understand that he became a man, point number one. There we go. To die our death. Forgive me. He became a man. To die our death. Text begins. That he. Second half of the verse. He partook the same things. Why? 
question, why did Christ have to become man? Why did he have to partake the same things? Well, I think in the text we can find a couple of answers. One, to die our death, to die as our substitute, he had to become man because substitutes have to be equal. Substitutes must be equal. Verse 14 says that the children, that is us, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook. The word therefore partake means to take a, take a hold of something not naturally your own, something alien, something foreign. Right? We share in flesh and blood. He took a hold of something not naturally his own. To die for us, he had to become one of us, an equal substitute. As an example of this, Hebrews mentions, I'm sure you've heard the verse, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. They only covered them for a little bit. So why is it that the blood of bulls and goats, even though Solomon offered thousands and thousands and thousands of bulls, how come that could never take away sins? Well, because you're not a bull. You're not a goat, right? So if we turn there, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, states, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Right? We didn't need the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats. We needed a body. We needed a human body to be sacrificed in our place. Right? We needed flesh and blood to live the sinless life that we could not live to fulfill the law as a man. And then being innocent, die the human death that we deserve. Substitutes have to be equal. Second reason, I think, maybe not in the text, um, but in order to be a substitute, in order to be a man, right, God had to make himself capable of death. I think sometimes we don't even think about this, but right, the law demanded death because of our sin. And so someone had to die, either me, either you, or a substitute. The problem is that the only one who would die in our place could not die in our place because God cannot die. And the incarnation solves this dilemma. The only way to deliver us was through death, and the only way to die was to become man. Well, what did this death accomplish? Two things in verses 14 and 15. This death destroyed the devil, excuse me, destroyed the devil and delivered the dominated. First, it says in verse 14 that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Destroyed the devil. I remember the first time I read this, I thought, Oh, wait a second. Who has the power of death? It says here in the text that the devil has the power of death. Now, in what way can we say that Satan has the power of death? Obviously not that he decides who dies and when they die. That is obviously God's prerogative. We learn that in many, many places in Scripture. But in the context here, the power that Satan has in death is sin. A sin. One commentator states, the author of sin is the author of its consequences. The power which death has, Satan wields. Right? We are in bondage 
to Satan, verse 15 says, because we fear death. His power over us then is that with death comes judgment. And why? Because of sin. That is Satan's domain, right? The only reason we fear death is why? Because with death comes judgment. Why does judgment come in death? Because of sin. So how did Christ then destroy the devil? Well, by the removal of sin through his death. Christ rendered Satan powerless. The weapon that Satan wielded is now useless. Useless because it's already been used in full. I think of it kind of like a a bee sting. The deathly poison stung Christ in full. The stinger stuck there. And sin, Satan's weapon, is gone. Because the wrath of God has been, for my sin, has been completely poured out. There's no more judgment left because Christ took upon himself all of it. His death also delivered the dominated. He became a man to deliver us. I think very simply, um, Paul says it best in Galatians 2.22. We don't fear death because we've already died. I have been crucified with Christ. When Satan accuses us, tries to produce fear in us and reminds us that we deserve to die and that we will face judgment, we can simply reply, been there, done that. I've already died and received the full punishment for my sin. I have been crucified for my sins in Christ Jesus. When sin was removed, so was the fear of death that enslaved us. It says in verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The only reason we really fear death is judgment. Now with sin gone, death is only the entrance to the joys of heaven. So Christ's death turned the fear which once enslaved us into the hope which now frees us. I'm going to die. And be raised to sinless immortality. Hallelujah. This is not bad news. This is good news. Verse 16. Says that Christ had to become man in order to die our death. And then adds. For surely it is not angels that he helps. What does that have to do with this text? Helps a little bit that we read chapter 1. But it's interesting there that he says, for surely or obviously, as we all know, it is not angels that he helps. Well, what's what's the point here? It's like maybe we're not even asking the same questions. And I think we have to remember, take a step back and remember, this is a very Jewish book written to a Jewish audience. The first clue would be in the context. That angels are here because this book was written to Jewish Christians who are considering the possibility of saying that Jesus was a supreme angelic being to avoid persecution. Second clue, if you have a, any sort of study Bible, can be found in the notes where generally they will say that help, that word help literally translated means to take a hold of something. Should be or could be translated to take the nature of something. He did not become an angel like some thought. That would only help angels. He came to help the seed of Abraham. What is obvious to the author of Hebrews is that he came to help us, not angels. 
He came to help us, the seed of Abraham. And if he came to help us, well, then the author's point is proved. He became a man to help men. He took a hold of humanity to die as our substitute. Right? If we can say that Christ became a man, that proves his point. So Christ came to earth as a man to die our death and thereby destroy the devil, deliver the dominated. The author, author of Hebrews gives us a second reason why Jesus became a man. Oftentimes, I think, overlooked. We'll spend a little bit more time here. And that is that he became a man to live our life. To do it, verse 17 says, in every respect. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That phrase there, he had to, literally translated as he owed it. It denotes a moral obligation. The question for us this morning is why, why was it morally obligatory in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest that Christ become like us in every respect? Well, I'd like to just maybe sort of paint the picture for us of what it would be like if the opposite were true. What would it be like if Christ had not become like us in every respect. This is what he did not do. This is what would have been unethical in the author's mind. He didn't come to earth as a 30-year-old man, do a little ministry, and then die. If the goal was just to die, if the goal was just to be crucified, wouldn't that have been enough? He could just descend out of heaven as a man, tell everyone they're wicked sinners, and they would have crucified him. Get rid of at least the 33 years of living in a nasty body. But that wouldn't work because he also needed to fulfill the law for us to be a substitute. And those are not a perfect illustration. I I think of it a little bit like this. Let's say you're in your home and and you tell your son to take out the trash out of the kitchen. Well, a minute goes by, five minutes goes by, half an hour goes by, hour goes by. Doesn't do nothing. You say, if you don't take out the trash, Oh, we do that in Mexico. That's for us. Spanking. Well, discipline. I get mixed up with all my hand signals. Funny aside, obviously, this is not in the notes. But in Mexico, when you want to say thank you to someone, you give them a backhand like this. So they're like crossing the street. Thank you. And uh, that is sometimes taken the wrong way here in the States, apparently, because you're like, thank you. But um, so we're learning. We're learning. So you tell your child take out the trash or discipline is coming and they don't do it. Well, in, in the silly illustration, one of your son's friends comes along and says, you know what, I'll, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the, the judgment. You can spank me instead of him. Okay. So you wallop on your kid's friend. What's the problem? Where's the trash? It's still in the kitchen. It's still in the kitchen. And if your son is so wicked that he is incapable of obeying, incapable of picking up that heavy trash and taking it out, we're still in the same dilemma. That substitute needs to not only take the wrath, not only take the judgment, but also has to obey, also has to fulfill the law. He has to become a perfect substitute. He has to obey and receive judgment. And that is why, in part, Christ had to come as a babe to become just like us, yet without sin. Right? So as a child, he didn't run around zapping everything like the force. He didn't like cereal. You know, he didn't do stuff like that. Why? 
Because then he wouldn't know what it's like to be just a man and be hungry. When the Pharisees asked that he would do a sign from heaven, he said, a wicked and perverse generation wants to see stuff like that. John says that the wedding of Cana at age 30 was his first public miracle. We also, I think, oftentimes get the impression that Christ's temptations weren't really all that bad like ours. We say, you know, Christ was impassable. He was unable to be tempted because he's God. As a little side note, never let your theology, never let your theology sit in authority over the scriptures, right? The scripture defines our theology, not the other way around. It is true that Christ was impassable in his divinity, but he was very passable in his humanity. He was tempted. The text says it. He suffered when tempted. You can't deny that. Christ was tempted just like we are, just like we are. Well, why is this so important? Why is it that there is this moral obligation for him to become like us in every respect? Well, Christ didn't just make bread, like I said, because then he wouldn't understand what it's like to be hungry. That's part of what the whole point of the incarnation was, right? That in the kenosis, when Christ came down and became a man, he voluntarily emptied himself of the use of, of certain divine prerogatives. That's a, that's a pretty important definition there, that Christ voluntarily emptied himself of the use of certain divine, divine prerogatives. Example, God, Christ, is omnipresent everywhere at all times. But in the incarnation, Christ voluntarily subjected himself to the confines of a human body. When Christ was here on earth, he wasn't... Right? He's 100% man. In fact, I think if we analyze the temptations of Christ, when Satan was tempting Christ, those temptations are really temptations that we don't deal with, right? I don't know if you've ever been tempted to turn a stone into bread, but that'd be a really easy temptation for me to fight, you know, because I can't do it. The, The point, what's so hard about that is that Satan was tempting Christ to use his own divine power to fulfill his human needs that's something that christ never did christ limited himself to the same abilities that we have as humans so what christ did do is that he submitted himself to god in all things even in death even on the cross i i always wondered um when i was growing up reading the bible why it says And it always says that the father raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Why does it not say that Jesus raised himself from the dead? Right. Did Jesus have the power to raise himself from the dead? Yes, of course he did. He's God. Now, I'm not making some sort of theological statement that Jesus did not participate at all in his own resurrection. There are secret things that belong to the Lord our God, and I'm not going there. All I'm saying is that the emphasis of Scripture is, is and always is on the fact that the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And my question to you is why? And I think the simple answer is because I cannot raise myself from the dead. I can't. And that's hard to believe. And so what a comfort it is to know that when I follow, when I trace Christ's footsteps and I entrust my soul to the Father as Christ did, I await the same resurrection 
same resurrection of which Christ was the first fruits. If you'll turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. The author of Hebrews writes that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his fear or his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The question is, why did God listen to Christ's prayers? According to our text there. Why did the Father listen to Christ's prayers? Because he was his son? Because he was God? Because he was different from you or me? No. God listened to Christ because Christ feared God and obeyed him. And that is so encouraging because I am not God's divine son. And I can't raise myself from the dead, but I can be faithful. I can obey God and know that if I fear God in the way that Christ did, that God will hear me in the same way that he heard Christ. Christ came to earth to show us as the second Adam how we ought to live. We, don't, we need only now to follow to trace his footsteps. Right? This is why scripture says that even the miracles that he did, he did not by his own divine power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Be an example. Right? Peter, Paul, other men would raise people from the dead in the future, just as Christ did. If Christ had done everything by his own power, they wouldn't have a clue what to do. Well, I need to move on here. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why was it morally necessary to be a man to be a high priest? Well, a high priest, they do two things. They intercede and they make sacrifice. So first, in order to be an intercessor, in order to plead on our behalf, Right? How, how could Christ be a merciful and faithful high priest and intercede for us if he didn't understand our plight? He didn't understand where we were coming from. Secondly, he couldn't propitiate God's wrath against humans unless he was human. Right? He couldn't deliver us as God alone. He had to deliver us as a man dying in our place and receiving as the second Adam all the wrath that we who were in the first Adam deserved. Well, this leads us to our last verse, where the text states that for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered when tempted. It's emphatic. He intercedes with understanding. In chapter 4, passage that many of us have memorized it says since then we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need he was tempted in every way And again, I guard you against saying something like, yeah, but he was God. He never sinned. it's, It's not quite the same for him. He doesn't know what it's like to wrestle with the dark temptations that I wrestle with because I'm stuck in this nastiness of sin. I'm infected by it. And he was not. 
Look, his, his sinlessness does not make him understand less. It makes him understand much more. Well, we are oftentimes so prideful to think that we understand temptation better because we give in so quickly. It's in fact quite the opposite. Right? If we think of a kind of silly temptation, maybe we, we all say that we're going to fast for 30 days, all of us. Well, after maybe six, seven days, I don't know if I'd last that long. But six, seven days, I'm probably in the hospital, you know, passed out, receiving IV liquids. We'll say that the most spiritual here in the group will say it's Pastor Adam. He lasts 37 days. I have no idea how hungry he was. After 37 days, I have no idea how strong the temptation was to not eat that long. Why? Because I gave in after six. And none of us have any idea. None of us really knows what it would be like to go the full 40 days. Why? Because we all gave in. Christ, from his birth, bore the weight of every single temptation. And like I mentioned before, temptations far different even than we ever face because he had the power to do many things that he did not. He bore the weight of every single one of those temptations until the garden. And the Bible says that he was so overwhelmed with the thought of being forsaken by his father and carrying our sin that the very capillaries on his face began to burst and he began to sweat great drops of blood. He suffered and tempted. Don't. How dare we think? How, how dare I think? How dare I insult his blood and say that he doesn't understand this difficult life that I live? How dare we? Christ is better than anything. We have everything we need in him. There's no need to turn to anything else. Christ is best. I love the line in, in Be Thou My Vision where it states, Not be all else to me save that thou art. Just, just be to me exactly who you are. Right? To worship Christ, we must worship him for exactly who he is. Right? When we feel pain, turn your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. There's a moment when you feel lonely, he much more. He devoted his life in not sleeping and not eating and serving and loving and healing and in the moment of his crucifixion was betrayed by all and died alone. If you're overburdened, thinking that people are demanding too much of you and you're tempted to start thinking about yourself, I think of a passage in Matthew 15 where the text explicitly says that Jesus hasn't eaten for three days, probably hasn't slept well in longer. And he looks out about the multitudes when he feeds the 4,000 and says that he's unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Right, I... I I said, man, I am starving. I haven't eaten in three days. I haven't slept well. 
disciples, give me some grub. You know, and, and Jesus is the opposite. When he feels his own human hunger, what does he do? That drives him to think, well, if I'm hungry, they must be hungry. What can I do to serve them and provide for them? Even on the cross, being desperately thirsty. You read the crucifixion account, it is grueling. And it wasn't until he was sure that he had met every single need after he'd cared for his mother, after he'd been forsaken by his father, born the sins of the world, cried, to tell us die, it is finished. Only then did he say, I thirst. He thirsted. He thirsted because he was a man just like us. But the few minutes we have left, he's not just a man anymore. And I think... One of the biggest comforts to me thinking about the humanity of Christ is setting it in the context currently of his deity. Because right, he's not the gaunt, pale man of sorrows anymore. Hebrews 1 says that Christ is the creator of the universe. He who upholds all things by his word of power. Right? If I, if I take this pen and I drop it, what's going to happen? Well, why did it fall? i got a high school science teacher here sitting next to me. You see, why did it fall? Because Christ upholds all things by his word of power. Right? Sometimes we, we get so intoxicated by unbiblical worldviews that we lose sight of biblical truth in our everyday lives, of the power of God in everything that we do. Christ is governing every single electron, making our hearts beat at this very moment. And I think the problem then is that not only do we deify Christ's humanity, as we saw in the message, not only do we deify his humanity and belittle his incarnation, now that he's exalted in glorious resplendence, we also humanize his deity and bring him down. We sing, Jesus, 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 my friend, my best friend, and what? Remember the Apostle John. Right? I think, unarguably, when you read the Gospel, John is probably Jesus' best friend here on earth. Right? Well, an interesting happen, thing happens. John goes for about 60 years without seeing his best friend. Right? 33 AD, Revelation is written in maybe 97, 98. So 65 years. You would think the way that we talk and sing about Jesus, that John, when he sees him again, would have been like, Hey man, how's it going? Long time no see. Man, I love you. It's good to see you. Because that's how he treated here on, on earth. John says that his hair was white like wool. That of his mouth was a two-edged sword. That his voice was like the roar of many waters. That his eyes were like fire. And that his face was shining like the sun in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And what a comfort. What a comfort it is to know that right now, at God's right hand, stands a man. A man who, by nature of his humanity, understands exactly what it's like to be me. Exactly what it's like to go through the temptations that I go through. Exactly what it's like to walk in my shoes, because he did. But by nature of his deity, also has the power to do something about it and to do exactly what is best for my eternity. That is the promise that he gives us. In conclusion, just quickly here, 
because uh, I feel like I would do the book of Hebrews an injustice if I didn't at least mention that the more and more we exalt Christ and look at his exaltation, we also kind of sort of raise the stakes on judgment. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author gets to the section where he starts talking about the cross. And that once for all sacrifice when Christ perfected those of us who are being sanctified. And having the exaltation of the cross in view, I'd like for you just to listen. What it says in Hebrews chapter 1, 26. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 starts off, for if we, don't, don't miss that. We is, is us. The author who is a Christian obviously is including himself in this exhortation. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You think God was angry at the Israelites for grumbling against Moses? What sort of unspeakable fate awaits men like us? Men like us who have seen the glory of who Christ is. Who have read about the wonders of who Christ is in all his humanity and deity and his word. And then, and then to drift. Then to neglect our great salvation. Then to disdain the blood of his son. To trample over his sacrifices is unspeakable. You may say, come on, Josiah, we're Christians. We go to grace the valley. We're not going to fall away. Well, mine is to exhort you to persevere. Persevere to the end. Don't turn to other things. Christ is best. Consider him. Granted, we may not be considering turning back to some pagan religion, but we're all tempted to take our eyes off of Christ. We're all tempted when trials come to compromise his character a bit to avoid the problems like the Jewish Christians were doing. And the author of Hebrews exhorts us, consider the man, consider the God-man, Jesus Christ, for who he is and believe in him. Don't look to anyone else, anything else. Christ, our text says, partook our nature, that which was foreign to him, to die our death and to live our life. An interesting verse in 2 Peter 1.4 says that through the great and very precious promises of, given to us by his death, we, in turn, partake, same word, his divine nature. He partakes our humanity and dies so that we can partake his divinity and live. My friends, that is gospel. That is good news. He lived the life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve. May we preach him, my brothers. May we preach him. Christ, not, not the Christ that we fancy, not the Christ of the Catholics, not the Christ that fits so nicely with our materialistic lifestyle, but the Christ of the Scriptures. 
the Christ who saved us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that after offering a perfect sacrifice, you sat down. The work is finished. There is no longer anything that we must do to be saved, but trust in you and follow you. Pick up our cross and follow you. Help us, Father, to, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to trace his footsteps, to believe and understand that right now at your right hand, stands our older brother who intercedes with understanding for us at this very moment. And I pray for all of those listening to your word today who struggle, are tempted, that we would find comfort in knowing that you care, that you love, and that you prove that by dying for us and becoming man. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.